Welcome to the Armchair Trader podcast. Today, we will be speaking to Sam Smith, CEO of UK brokerage house FinCap. First of all, can you just tell us a little bit more about what FinCap is, what you do, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the name? Yeah, of course. So FinCap is all about strategic advisory and capital raising services. Um, we act for small and mid-cap companies. Um, we have pretty much all the suite of financial services for a, a small mid-cap company from selling the business and exiting to debt advisory, um, equity raisings on the public markets with IPOs and um, sort of bid advisory work where we act for buyers of public companies. So the full suite of services, we have about 120 corporate clients, uh, about 140 staff, and we are the largest broker on the AIM market. And so that I mean, a lot of our a lot of our listeners and readers on the website are quite active in small caps and on the AIM market. So they're 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 really big fans of that. Um, how have you found that market in the run up and subsequent to Brexit? I know you've commented publicly before about um, the need for some reform in UK financial markets, particularly post Brexit. And I know a lot of investors are a little bit you know, worried about seeing companies like Just Eat looking at other options overseas. What what do you, how do you see the sort of overall health of the financial markets and, and is there things you think could be improved? Okay, so it, quite a few questions in that. So I think on the retail investor side, we have always been great supporters of that. And actually 13 years ago, when we did our buyout, a big part of setting up was how can we create liquidity? How can we create the biggest, broadest group of shareholders for a client and in that doing the right thing for the client and getting retail exposure. And that's continued really all the way through the last 13 years and post MIFID when you couldn't, um, a lot of brokers decided not to give research out to wealth managers, private clients if they weren't paying. What we decided is we would actually give it to everyone for free and make that available to the vast um, majority of people who want it. So that is all our research is available to retail. So we're very much about yeah, let's let's get retail participation. And I think what's happened this year is quite interesting. It is in a COVID world where everyone's at home, the retail element of all of our deals and secondary trading is really starting to go up considerably. And it's highlighted that you know, when these issues were being done post-March at discounts and when preemption rights were changed, how is the retail investor getting involved? So we've done a lot of work in trying to get retail investors included in deals, whether it's via a primary bid, whether it's via an open offer, um, but just making sure that is taken into account. And I think that is a huge part of the market going forward that is accessible. And then if you look at Brexit, so what Brexit's done is meant, you know, we can be a rule maker and are there parts of the rules that were difficult for retail investors? I think where we struggled was having this limit of 8 million euros um, without having to do a prospectus. And that's actually quite small. OK, it's probably fine at the smaller end of AIM, um, where that's probably quite a big percentage of the raise. But when you get the very big raises, that's tiny and that's not really getting them the right percentage. So... Things like limits on prospectuses are things that could be looked at, which might benefit the retail investor a bit more broadly. 
I think overall with Brexit, we're seeing you know, probably no real change to our end of the market with small mid caps is that, you know, what really drives it is having a funding ecosystem that works. And that does work in the UK. And that's working because you have good um, EIS VCT rules. Obviously, they hopefully could be changed and made more attractive under sort of post Brexit regulation, if possible. Um, but as long as you've got the ecosystem, you've got companies being backed, you've got companies being set up. And there were, there were over 700,000 companies set up last year. Um, so I think the ecosystem is there. The bit that I think does need work is, you know, keeping London attractive for listings and particularly in the tech space. How do we really make sure we are competing for life sciences and tech deals and getting them to come to market so we don't just back them up to a point and then lose them? You seem to be big fans of um, tech companies and fintech companies. Do you think that, that that traditionally that sector has been quite a healthy one in the UK and the UK has been seen as as a, a, lead, a leader in the tech space? Do you anticipate more flow of tech companies listing on AIM? I think we do. And I think um, not just tech. I think it almost feels like after 10 years of the IPO being not really... Um, the greatest option for a lot of companies where they've gone to PE. Um, I think now the IPO is coming into its own because people have seen the liquidity over the last 12 months, effectively, of what a public market offering can bring and how quick and easy the fundraising can be. So we've seen a big uptick in companies looking at IPOs. But as you say, a lot of them are tech because what's happened is, you know, post-COVID, a lot of models are having to be tech-driven, a lot of tech disruption has been accelerated massively. So those companies that are doing quite well right now are generally within tech, whether it's legal tech because it's all going online, whether it's gov tech trying to get um, local authority services online and delivered in a different way, or it's health tech you know, where you're trying to get um, maybe telemedicine or a different way of delivering services. So. There's so many elements of tech, they're all growing fast, they're all in play. And those companies, I think, are looking at IPO as a potential option because they can carry on growing the company with it. They don't have to just sell out. You mentioned something, um, again, in some of your recent um, outputs from FinCap, um, indust the industrial technology sector, which is something you're a, a big fan of. For those who are not familiar with that area what what do you mean by an industrial technology i know you i know you've worked with companies like surface transforms and and trackwise designs again every area of tech it's running through every single business so if you look at industrial tech what could it be well it could be about how you make manufacturing processes quicker easier um, whether it's using robotics or a different process it could be how you make a material better using technology so you know is is there a better more environmentally friendly material or is there just something in the process that technology makes it quicker and easier to produce um, there's a company that we act for that is industrial technology but they take um, plastic particles out of um, the water in a washing machine so you know that is also in industrial technology but that's a very specific you know plastic orientated water product so it is quite broad, but it's almost anything that involves the manufacture and processing of something that can be better enabled with tech. 
And, and you, you touched on um, some of the environmental issues. I mean, this is obviously a huge um, theme at the moment for investors, and we're seeing a lot of interest, certainly on, on the armchair trader, from people looking at smaller companies that have a strong sort of climate-related or environmental technology edge. Is that something that, that you're seeing on your side as well? Is there is there more interest in those sorts of companies? And is that um, looking like something you'll expect to continue this year? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, our view is this is the start of a mega trend, that it's been relatively slow moving. COVID absolutely accelerated it because the focus is now on how is business giving back to society? What is it doing? Investors in funds are very much driving the behaviour of institutional investors because they want something that's more ethical. So the ESG, Environmental Society Governance Word, is definitely out there and investors are looking at it more than they ever have before and funds are flowing into those areas. So that will drive fund managers to start looking at opportunities that have real ESG creds so I would say it's the very start of a mega trend. Um, we are starting to see ESG-based IPOs that are looking to the market. We're starting to see fund managers think about ESG when they're investing in secondary placings. But I think there is a lot more to come. And I think our belief as a firm is quite quickly, and with all these mega trends, the pace of change it just happens much faster than you think. We think there'll be a time soon where almost if you're not an ESG stock or you can't prove your sustainability, so governance, social impact creds, you will probably become uninvestable. So we're very much trying to push um, that message out. We've actually launched a reporting product, which is how SMEs, quoted SMEs, can report on ESG just to give investors a bit more steer on how they're thinking and the direction of travel so those companies don't become uninvestable. So I think it's a big, big theme. I don't think it's quite there yet, but I think when it goes, it's really going to be big. And this is obviously, I mean, I've seen this being an issue for fund managers themselves because fund managers have their own, are starting to have their own ESG reporting requirements. The European Union is, is bringing in um, new directives around this area as well. From the perspective of the private investor um, who might be also you know very ESG conscious, do you envisage um, a point where smaller companies will be producing ESG reports for for the private market as well? Absolutely, which is why going back to this, what can we do about it and, and think at trying to lead the charge on it in September we came up with a think at ESG scorecard, which is looking at sort of eleven metrics of how a company can not be frightened by this, but start thinking about just some basic things that you can do to think about ESG. And it starts with just basic monitoring. What is your um, environmental impact? Just knowing what it is, doing some measurements, looking at your board. Is it diverse? Those sorts of things. And we've actually recently partnered just before Christmas with a company called WWG, Worldwide Generation. And they have a great tech product, software product for any company um, to report on ESG, quite cheap and quite easy to do. We've done it for FinCap to um, go through the process. We're offering it to all our corporate clients free for a year um, to make sure you know, there's some incentive to try and start looking at it. And we're trying to promote that to all SMEs in the quoted space that 
there is this product around you can do it it's not going to take loads of time and money but actually let's all start this journey because i absolutely think investors will be pushing for this and what you don't want is a company to be behind the curve and you know if investors need it you need to match that reporting requirement uh, the, the other obviously the other big story covid and the and its impact on not just the uk economy but further afield are you seeing any impact on the aim market on smaller companies on the pace of companies coming to the market or has it been more negligible so it's actually been quite marked and it's you know it's not necessarily directly because of covid but indirectly what covid meant is back in march when things were all looking you know quite difficult for companies and they wanted to shore up balance sheets what happened is rather than the market shutting which sometimes does you know in the global financial crisis everything shut it suddenly was open for investment so companies could raise money could shore up balance sheets then you found that good companies that weren't struggling with covid were able to raise money and do deals and make acquisitions and raise growth capital so you had this big sort of wall of money raised very quickly which has continued you know, pretty much since march all the way through and what that's done is driven companies that are growing to think about public markets in a way they didn't before so what we've seen is companies who are growing having ipo on their agenda where it hasn't been on the agenda for a very long time so the the deal flow that's coming through in ipos i mean we're, we're seeing i think on monday there were four um, intention to float announcements we've obviously had moon pig and dr martins which have been successful ipos um, in terms of post um, ipo pricing so you, you've really seen a big so demand to look at an IPO as a possible route for growth capital for companies as well as PE exiting. So it's well up there on the agenda. We're seeing a great pipeline. Um, tech, life sciences, particularly strong areas as well as e-commerce um, to look out for. But I suspect this is the start of a lot of IPOs coming through the system. We've obviously seen a lot of uh, private equity companies that are have been active in sectors like technology that are wanting to now shift those companies um, onto onto the public markets. Do you think that the pricing that those companies are coming onto the markets is fair, and that the investments that some of these uh, PE funds are retaining are priced differently from those that the the guys buying the the shares at the IPO are buying it at? In other words, is there a bit, is there a too much of a disparity between between the original uh, investors' shares and those that are actually appearing on the market? So you're talking about the disparity with when they bought the asset and then they're floating it quite soon afterwards at, at big multiples of that original investment. Exactly. If that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, it is difficult. I think everything about markets that we look at is is it priced properly at the time? I think trying to go back and say. Did someone get a great deal? Is it unfair that you know, they've benefited? I think that is a difficult argument. I think where we look is just on the day of IPO, is this price properly? Are investors then going to make money after the event? And yeah, has it got a decent aftermarket? And if that's the case, then that pricing is, is right. Are you including all the right investors? Are you allowing retail to get involved at that point where you're just going to institutions? And do retail have to buy, you know, in the aftermarket when it's already gone up 20 percent? 
I think that is probably more relevant. But, you know, PER, they do, they do their own thing. They take risk in a different way. Um, they obviously gear things up and they have different ways of creating value. And I probably wouldn't want to comment on what the rights and wrongs of that because it is is just what they do. But what I think we need to be careful is the IPO is priced properly. There's a good aftermarket and we include retail within that. And speaking of the retail market, um, we've seen a lot of action in the US market uh, last week and into this week on the um, strength of the Reddit forums and uh, large numbers of investors piling into a very small number of listed stocks. Some people are saying this is the you know the new era of dem democratization of the market. Um, certainly, it seems to be, as far as we can see, leading to much more enthusiastic participation from a lot of first-time investors, which follows on from a wave of new investors coming into the market, which we saw back in March, April time. Are you seeing that impact where, where you are? And do you think that that's going to change the, the complexion of the markets over here as well? I don't think we've seen anything similar over here, but I absolutely believe, you know, this is the start of you know, disintermediating the individual investor from the fund manager or the fund. And, you know, that is a trend. Again, it feels like it's the start of a mega trend. You know, retail want to get involved. Do they want to do it via a fund or do they want to have, do it themselves? It seems there's a lot of demand for doing it themselves. And there seems you know, there are now the platforms to make that possible. So my belief is that it will absolutely become more common. Um, people will start making decisions for themselves. There'll be more of these platforms. You know, they'll want to get involved in the wealth creation and not just have it for the, the small number of institutions and hedge funds where their money might be invested via there or with a hedge fund where you can't even get involved as a retail client. So I really think this is going to be an interesting space to watch for all sorts of reasons, but I think it is definitely the start of something that we'll see much more often. The One of the sort of big areas of the AIM market, and which has always been a big area, is the, uh, the mining and, and energy um, sectors. Those are ones that have always gone to the AIM market because that seems to suit them quite well when it comes to raising new capital for their activities, much of which is higher risk, particularly when they're in the exploration space. That's also now, as we've already discussed, um, running into this, this whole higher awareness of ESG. And it, it's something that um, was discussed quite heavily last year at the mining in Daba in, in South Africa, which we were at. Do you... What what do you see from the perspective of those sectors in terms of going forward and in terms of continuing to raise capital on the AIM market? Do you think that it's going to get tougher for them just because of the sector that they're in? And, and do you think investors will continue to stay on board in terms of backing mining companies and oil companies? So I think there's a difference between the mining companies and the oil companies. I and mean, there's a in which mining companies can show they're doing the right thing and um, yeah, show that they're not their environmental impact is being measured so I think mining is not quite such a serious problem as energy which is a real problem because you know that is right in the difficult space but I don't think 
it will disappear overnight. I think there's a movement where these companies have to start thinking about how they address the ESG issue. So it's not about totally changing your business model overnight, but it is about recognising your impact and moving to more sustainable energy. And if you don't start doing that soon, yeah, I do think there will be a point where just an oil and gas exploration company will be difficult. And back to the, will it become uninvestable? My personal view is it will. And I don't know how fast that will be. And like anything, you, should, you know, you, we might not see it for a bit. And people still like energy and oil and gas and mining stocks because they are, you know, they're traded. They, they move quite quickly. Things happen. But it is, you know, we're on notice that we're at the start of this potentially could be a really difficult area. So we could conceivably have a, you know, a point in the not too distant future where uh, um, an oil company wants to IPO, let's say a sort of mid-sized uh, company, and they'll uh, they will find it really hard to get that IPO away because, I mean, for just just for starters, um, some small to mid-cap fund managers may have decided they don't want to have oil companies in the portfolio anymore. Absolutely, and you can see that happening, and certainly if they haven't addressed the issue of how they move to something more sustainable. I think it, it doesn't mean to say you can't do it, but unless you're helping the cause and being very much seen to help the cause and move the industry into something more sustainable, I think that could easily happen. And it will be driven by the underlying investor, the retail person who's put their money in, who is driving that behaviour. And if it suddenly becomes like a tobacco stock, yeah, that, that will just be a an absolute cross off the list, won't it? And the other the other area which we've seen a lot of interest in this year has been um, I, I want to say biotech, but really it's pharmaceutical and uh, in the small cap space, it's been those companies, and a lot of them are actually UK based companies, yeah. very small that are in involved in not just the development of a COVID vaccine, but also in um, fast testing for COVID virus and there's been intense interest in, in companies like uh, Novacit and Synergen on the part of uh, private investors as well. COVID isn't going away immediately, the vaccination program is happening as we speak, but these testing solutions look like they're going to continue to be in massive demand um, going forward over the course of the year. What do you think that um, that's doing for the sort of the health of that particular area because we have we, if you look at some of these companies they're very small i mean some of them have you know, less than 20 employees but um their their shares have really shot up and are trading at many multiples from where they were just 18 months ago life sciences you know, like you were saying energy and mining might become a dirty word life sciences seems to have come into its own and we are um leaders in this space we've been in it forever um, it's um, very core to us. Um, we love this sector, but for 13 years, investors haven't really loved it too. And it's been difficult. And what has been great about this period is it's put into focus the whole life science space, which is, as you say, it's from testing to devices, to delivery of healthcare, to drug development. And actually meant people have realized there is a real impact here. There is, there is risk in this pipeline. And it is a bit in a way like an oil company or, you know, where you you might drill for something and it might take years to come to fruition. 
and it's a binary outcome. Life sciences is quite similar to that, but for some reason, people haven't been able to get over the time taken to develop a drug. What this period has done is put it so much in focus that it's changed the perception of how people see life sciences and drug development. And it's made people focus on the long-term value of that product. So if, if that product's addressing a need, which might be a massive global need and that market's big, you can start seeing why that company can be really valuable, not just about the income it's generating early on. And that's a massive repositioning for life sciences in the UK, certainly. So the interest in it has been sustained. Obviously, the share price performances have been amazing and raising money in it continues to be really good. But I hope more importantly, as a longer term theme, investors are starting to see why life sciences businesses are valuable and that makes them much more investable and much more mainstream. So it used to be very much we would have specialist people selling our life science stories to specialist people. Now it's almost like tech. Everyone has to understand it because it's a really important part of a portfolio. And that's a big switch, I think. From where you're sitting at the moment, if overseas companies who may already have their primary listing in another country, um, particularly non-European um, listed companies, um, say in the ASX or, or one of the North American exchanges, when they're looking at Europe um, and they're looking at a European listing as well, what for them would you say they're going to be the main attractions for, for coming to London and, and listing on a, on a UK exchange? Well, I think we've obviously got the listing review at the moment, which will hopefully make that more competitive. But I think outside of that, the liquidity, particularly if you're a growth company, is still is the best place to be. I mean, AIM and the smaller end of the FTSE, if you're a company that's sub 300, 500 million market cap, you will get some liquidity and interest in the UK market, whereas you may not in the US. So I think there's still a, a real place if you're a growth company in a growth sector, which obviously tech and life sciences are, that the UK market is still by far the best place to go. And reputationally, it's starting to, I think, be seen as that as companies get more credible and there are bigger companies on AIM in particular you know, that are doing well. That all helps that reputation. So I think it's it's the liquidity and the fact we just focus on growth. We're very good at growth. Thank you very much indeed for your time. I really appreciate that. No problem. Good to chat to you. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast with me, Stuart Fieldhouse, and Sam Smith, CEO of FinCap. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. To get uh, up-to-date commentary on what's happening in the share markets, both in Europe and North America, and our views on some of the emerging investment stories in the small cap space, make sure you check out www.thearmchairtrader.com and sign up to our free daily newsletter.